This is Black Talk, where global black experts mix with local voices from the black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-black racism. Today's guest is Miriam Zinta, a black woman who can easily be mistaken as white. Miriam began her career as a community organizer and has served as the executive director of a not-for-profit neighborhood organization. Recently, she served as the senior housing programmer for the city of Rochester, New York, and she now works in the housing finance sector. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Panda, with our guest, Miriam Zinta. Miriam Zinter, thanks so much for being with us, Miriam. I really appreciate your invitation. Thank you. Wonderful. It's, it's so good to see you, Miriam. And I I want to start the ball rolling by asking you a question about your dad. Uh, because I, I read somewhere that your dad was a, a Navy veteran and um, an excellent electrical engineer. And yet he was unable to get a job because he was black. And, um, and, and that's largely because of institutional racism. So I want you to talk a little bit about his experience, which ha- probably happened way before you were born. But uh, how did this affect you when you found out about this when you were a kid? You know, my father never talked about it when I was a child. We were coming from um, my sister's house for Thanksgiving. My mother had fallen asleep in the back of the car. And all of a sudden, my father just started talking about things that happened to him in his past and about his experience and why he joined the Navy. And my father was a genius when it came to fixing anything electronic. Uh, From the time he was a little boy, he used to fix people's radios in the neighborhood. Uh, Then he graduated to fixing people's televisions. Anything that was electrical, he could fix. And he really wanted to be an electrical engineer. But when he spoke to people at his high school, he went to an all-white Catholic high school. He was the only Black student uh, at most Holy Rosary School in Syracuse, New York. And when he spoke with the guidance counselor there, he was told that um, Negroes don't go to college and that he should look for a job or perhaps consider the armed forces. And he had heard that the Navy had a very good electrical engineering program and he joined, uh, but he was not allowed to join the electrical engineering program as a black man. Eventually, through a series of events, he was able to get into that program. It was miraculous. And he was highly qualified as an electrical engineer to to get a job. When he applied, he was first hired as a custodian uh, at General Electric. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, uh, General Electric was an early implementer of um, civil rights and affirmative action. His sister, my Aunt Dolores, got a job at General Electric as a secretary receptionist, and she told him that he should reapply uh, as an electrical engineer, and he did so, and he he finally received employment as such. 
from sweeping the halls and mopping the halls to to finally being able to have a job that he could excel in, that he was excellent in. Oh, amazing. Well, it's just so good. It's just so good to hear about about the happy ending that comes with that, you know, despite some of the struggles that that it started out with, you know, to see to see him overcome in the end is is really good. And I just want to take your attention over to this amazing Huffington Post op-ed. Um, within it, you describe some of your experiences growing up as a young black girl in the 1960s. And um, I'm just wondering how difficult was it attending uh, predominantly white institutions during that time? How, what, what kind of techniques and how were you able to cope with all of the hostility that you faced and, and some of the hostility that you described? Oh, that's an excellent question, Zach. Thank you. Um, the interesting thing is going to all white schools is all I ever knew. That was my only experience. Uh, my parents tried their best to prepare me for the fact that most certainly I was going to face racism. Uh, the night before I left for kindergarten, I entered kindergarten when I was four years old. Um, my parents, I could read. My father would read to us every evening and he taught me to read at a very young age. So I was able to read at three years old. Um, I took an, an IQ test and I was put in into kindergarten when I had just turned four. So I was accelerated. Um, my parents had heard from people in the community uh, that white people had heard that a, a black child would be attending uh, their, their elementary school and they weren't happy about that. They had seen what had happened with Ruby Bridges. They knew what happened with busing. Um, they were very scared for me. So I remember them sitting me down to talk about race. And it's one of those things where, you know, it was the very first time my parents sat me down to talk to me very seriously. So I still remember, I remember where I was in the kitchen. I remember what my parents' faces looked like. I even remember what I was wearing um, because it was such a different conversation than what we had always had as a family. And they explained that there was such a thing called race, that our family was black, and that the children that I would be going to school with and the teachers were white, and that sometimes white people did not like black people. And this was something called racism prejudice. And that when I got to school, there might be some people yelling at me. Um, and I knew who Dr. Martin Luther King was. We, we all knew. My parents marched on Washington. Uh, Dr. King was revered in our household. And so they basically said, you know, if people yell at you and people say things to you, you just look straight ahead. The principal will be meeting you at the bus and you just walk into the school with the principal and you're like Dr. King. You don't say anything back. You hold your head high and you know that you're not the problem. They are the people who are prejudiced. There is nothing wrong with you. And so I went into school that day and I don't know if the people were expecting to see a little brown girl, not what appeared to be a white child with two light braids and blue eyes and light skin with my outfit from Sears and my little book bag, just marching very happy to be going to school that day. There were some people who um, 
who didn't let their, their kids play with me. Um, none of the kids when I was young, they didn't call me names when I was younger. Uh, there were some kids who told me they couldn't play with me. I didn't know why, but I found the kids who could and I, I played with them. So um, I found people who would welcome me and be kind to me and like me and I moved forward with them. Um, my kindergarten teachers were not very nice. Uh, for a while, they would not allow me to play with the other kids. They would not allow me to go out during recess. Uh, when I told my parents, my parents spoke with the principal. The principal put an end to that right away. It wasn't until that I, I got into junior high and high school um, that other students felt very comfortable calling me the N-word. And it was interesting. I was talking with some students about this the other day, and never once did somebody come up alone. It was always this mob mentality where somebody would come up and they would have their little group of friends behind them. And they would say, oh, I hear we have a white N here in school. You know, you're an N, you know, and trying to make me feel bad. And I would, and you know, it, it, it did, it hurt my feelings, but it also let me know uh, who to keep away from and looking at the people who hung with those people who were the weak-minded, who were the people that were easily influenced by evil and wrongdoing and did not have the confidence or the fourth righteousness to stand up against that. And that's a good thing to know in a community. So, yeah, you know, I hope I answered your question, Zach. No, you absolutely did. And thank you for sharing that. You know, I can actually um, relate to you a little bit because being a, being the, a child of immigrants that came here, uh, you know, you're born here and you're, if depending on where you live, you're put in directly into predominantly white institutions. And that was my experience as well. And um, I'm just really happy to hear that um, you got a little bit of that preparation talk from your parents because they were here. And so they kind of knew what was going on. In my case, my parents hadn't been. And so, you know, you just come in with the best of intentions, didn't get that chat, but, um, you know, and you, you go through the same things. I think it's interesting that, you know, so far back and away, you go through getting those names called in, in, in the schools, junior high, high school, same thing is happening today. You know, I, I actually experienced some of that myself when I was a little bit younger. So I think it's interesting, you know, to, to talk about that. It shows us how far we have to go. But um, where is your family from, Zach? Uh, they're actually from uh, Ghana. It's a country in West Africa, right on the coast. Mm -hmm. So it's such a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I had a similar kind of experience to you, except that my grandmother was the one that could pass for white, believe it or not. And um, and amazingly, um, the white families, and I was born in Barbados in the Caribbean. So the white families in Barbados, what it did was they would hire her to do jobs in their homes because they felt that she was not cut out to be out in the fields. That was one of the things that they would say, right? You know, so she became um, almost like a domestic servant in a way to these white families because she looked like them and she was allowed then to sort of help to raise their kids. So I, I, I can sort of, sort of relate to, the, to what you're saying but you know, a lot of the, I, I was reading one of your treads on um, Twitter, where you talked about your family's personal experience with institutionalized racism. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit, because I think some people don't know 
how racism could be sort of embedded within institutions to the point where, you know, it becomes almost like so normal uh, that uh, that people aren't able to, uh, apart from the sort of individual races, uh, they don't realize that there's something that's going on as a bigger picture that we have to look at. And that's the institutional nature of racism. Thanks, Andy. And the, the issue too with institutional racism is that because it's embedded and it's universal, its effects last for generations. So in the case of my mom and dad, once my my mom and dad were married and they had me, they decided that my my dad worked for GE now. He was an electrical engineer for GE. He was making good money. They decided that they wanted to invest in real estate and buy property. This is the American dream. My father is a veteran, so he should be able to to utilize the VA bill to be able to get a preferred interest rate loan, no problem. So they went around Syracuse, New York, looking at beautiful homes, and they would find a home and they would go to a bank and they would say, we want to buy this, we want to qualify for a mortgage. And the lender would say, oh, we're really sorry, but right here in the deed, it sells they can't sell to Negroes, so we really can't give you a loan because that would violate the deed restriction. So then they thought, well, we really want a home, but every single home had the deed restriction. So they thought, well, we will build a home. So they found a developer who had a new subdivision in Liverpool, New York. It was called Oot Meadows. The developer was Mr. Oot and O-O-T. And so they they picked out a, a, a parcel of land and they picked out a model for the home and he agreed to, to sell it to them. And they went to the bank to say, we've got this and there is no deed restriction. So we would like a mortgage. And my father said, you know, yes, I was honorably discharged from the Navy. I should qualify for a VA loan. And the bank just said, we're, we're not, we're not going to process that. Just not. And where do you go from there? You know, that it was it was the whole institution of the bank saying they weren't. And most likely, I don't know this for sure with the VA at the time, but I do know with FHA loans uh, and redlining, things like that, there was very specific guides, not just for redlining communities, but very specific guidelines that they would not insure loans for Black people. And without mortgage insurance, banks were not going to provide you with a loan. So my father could not get a mortgage. But at the time, GE was sending electrical engineers up to Alaska to do work in the Aleutian Islands, I believe. And they were paying a lot of money. And that you had your room, your board, and you were making like three times what you normally would make. So my mother and I moved in with my dad's mom, my grandma. We moved into her house. My dad left us for a full year and went to work in Alaska. And he sent back every paycheck. We paid my grandma for room and board to help her out. And my mother banked everything. And by the end of the year, my dad had cash. He paid cash for that home. And they got that home built. But he was very blessed because where he he worked 
and they had this opportunity to make money and he had a mother in the neighborhood and she had an extra room and we could stay there. And my father has incredible self-discipline. And, you know, he said a lot of, he doesn't, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke. Um, he said a lot of the guys would go to the bars, you know, do stuff. He was able to really send back a hundred percent of his paycheck. Um, and so we were able to achieve that. And because of that equity that they had in the loan, because when they went to sell it, they were able to buy a bigger, better house. They were able to take out equity. My sisters and I were able to go to college based on that. They, you know, they're able to move forward. Our whole family was able to move upward. But because of those institutional racist roadblocks, we were one out of how many? How many other Black families tried to get a house, tried to invest in equity, tried to grow their wealth, and at every turn were denied and crushed? Yeah, and it's a really it, that's a really good uh, good example to show you know just some of the barriers that need to be faced. Um, I kind of want to piggyback off of that and uh, move into this big story. Uh, the one that you brought up, because you know it's not enough to to you know you overcome the the uh, the barriers to financing, right? You bring cash, and now you're able to to pay it and and build your house. You enter into this into this neighborhood, and then you have an experience like yours. And this is something that you know you would never expect to hear something like this happen. And and we only get to know about it because you know somebody as unique as you is able to share this story. And so, what I wanted to to ask is is if you could speak a little bit about that just on the podcast and and just what it was like you know to witness something like that you know unfolding right in front of you. It was shocking. Um, so in in my current home, um, I I love to garden. I love to keep my home looking beautiful and. I have a dog that wakes me up really early. So typically on a beautiful spring and summer day, I'll wake up early, I'll walk the dog, and then I'll get some gardening in. So I'll go back and, and weed. And my neighbor, um, and they aren't, you know, it's so funny because on Twitter, people are like, if it's your next door neighbor, how does he not know? You're, no, he's not my next door neighbor. He, he lives like five streets north of me. I don't live next door to him. And, uh, how I kind of know him is, you know, he walks his dog, dog, different dog walkers, we say hello. And I also knew him from before I moved to the community. I knew him outside of the neighborhood, just in social circles. So, you know, I saw him walking with his dogs. I ran up uh, to pet the dogs to say hi, see if he wanted water. And he says, and I have a Black Lives Matter sign in front of my house. Um, I marched with Black Lives Matter. My daughter and I were tear gassed uh, marching here uh, with Black Lives Matter. And it's a it's one of many social justice issues I'm committed to. And I just thought he was just going to stop and have a nice conversation with me. And he looked at my sign and he said, um, can I ask you a question? Which I always hate when somebody says, can I ask you a question? Just that is a question, just ask me the question. Um, why would you have a Black Lives Matter sign in front of your house when all those people do is kill each other? 
And I, I could not even believe words. Well, you know what? So fun. So funny. I couldn't believe words like that came out of somebody's mouth. But recently I saw a quick interview with William Barr, um, the uh, past attorney general, I think for uh, Donald Trump, he's shilling a book and he was on an interview with Lester Holt and he said the exact same thing. He said the Black Lives Matter movement, what was he said? It was the biggest lie. He said something like the Black Lives Matter movement is the biggest lie because Police are not the problem for the black community. Uh, something like it's black on black crime or something ridiculous. But basically the exact same thing my neighbor said. And how many people is William Barr with this racist idea influencing? So I, I could not even believe that my neighbor said this. Uh, number one, there is no such thing as black on black crime. Absolutely no such thing. White people kill white people. Asian people kill Asian people. Black people kill black people. You kill who you associate with and who you know. And we had a long discussion, my neighbor, and I can't go into all of the things, but one of the things he said that many white people will say is, well, what's the black community doing about black crime? So I said, well, what's the white male community doing about all of these mass shootings in the U.S.? Because it's always the white male who does the mass shooting. So are you guys getting together to address this situation? Because if you think of my question, what are you doing to stop mass shootings is ridiculous. Consider the question that you have just given me. What's the black community doing? What are we doing as a nation about gun violence? What are we doing as a nation about mental health issues? What are we doing as a nation about abject poverty and the struggles that people face that lead to violence. This is not a black issue. This is not a white issue, but Black Lives Matter is a response to the fact that the very people that our tax dollars pay to protect us, they're not protecting us. Black Lives Matter is there are a group of people at the same table and the black person has been the only one not fed. Everybody else has gotten their meal delivered and is eating. And the black person says, excuse me, but my meal matters. And they say, all of our meals matter while they're eating away. It's the meal that's not delivered. It's the dream that's not attained. It's not being able to trust that the one person who's sent there to protect you may be the person who's going to end up killing you. And that's why Black Lives Matter. That story was part of your Huffington Post uh, article, right? And I was wondering about the circumstances under which you decided to write the, the Huffington Post article. Because I've read somewhere that it's, it's garnered something like 1.6 million views or something like this. Maybe it's more than that right now. Um, but what caused you to... To decide to, to put your story down on, on paper and send it to Huffington Post? It's such, that's a great question, Andy. Uh, I love to write. I, I write all the time. And especially if I have a lot of feelings and emotions um, that I'm really trying to get to the core of. So after I had the talk with my neighbor, I went in and I talked with my husband about it. And then I still, you know, you could only talk to somebody so much about how you're feeling. 
And then I, I started writing it down about how I was feeling and all of these emotions. And then I tweeted about my, my experience. Um, and then later, like a, a few weeks later, so this happened in July, my experience with my neighbor. And a few, a few weeks, maybe a couple months later, I was reading an article somebody put in the Huffington Post, and it was a, a woman uh, who was a doctor, a physician, and trying to keep her two parents who had cancer safe from COVID. And at the bottom, it said, if you have a personal experience that you think you would like to share on Huffington Post, share it. And I thought, well, you know, I do. So I just sent what I had written already, like in journaling, over to Huffington Post. And they said, we would like to print this. And before I printed it, before I said yes, I checked with my employer to say, you know, I wrote this thing. And it might go viral. Is there like HR or somebody? Do you guys need to read this before I put this out into the universe to make sure that you're not going to get any backlash um, at our company? And they said, just put it out there. My boss is excellent. My, I have wonderful. I work for a wonderful agency um, who does great things in the social justice and housing sphere. So uh, they said, you know what, this is your personal experience. This is your personal life. This isn't a matter for debate. This is your experiences growing up and, you know, put it out there. And so I did. And I said, yeah, you know, print it. And then the night before I was like, oh man, you know, I might get a bunch of hate for, for this. And, you know, I mean, my parents always said, if everybody loves you, you're doing something wrong. Everybody can't love you. There's going to be some people who don't like you, who are angry by something that you've said. But if you stand for something and you know what you stand for, that's and it's and you have integrity and empathy and a sense of of right and wrong, and you are on the side of right, it doesn't matter what people think. So um, but everybody has feelings and I'm a sensitive person, you know, I don't like, so that's like at the end, I was like, if you're a hateful troll, just move on with your day. Don't, don't uh, come after me on Twitter. Don't say anything, just move on, you know? So, but the response has been 99.99% wonderful and positive and people coming forward and saying, I've had the same experience. This is my family. And as you know, as people of color, we come in all shades. And like your grandmother, Andy, yeah. I mean, people were like, oh, when did you realize you look different from the rest of your family? Was the question. I said, <laughs> I never realized it because when we go to our family reunions, we have people that are very dark. We have people that are very light. We have redheads. You know, we have people with all, all kinds of shades, shapes, sizes. Yeah. I never felt different or unusual. Um, and I didn't realize that I was treated differently than members of my family until we got a mall in my neighborhood. And my mother would routinely get stopped for, quote unquote, being suspected of shoplifting. And I never did. Mm. And we have the same behaviors. My mom and I, I'm like a mini her, you know, we pick up things, we inspect things, we check the quality of things. And, you know, people would say, stop touching that merchandise to my mother or follow her out of the store. But it never, 
uh, to me. And then I realized we didn't have the word white privilege for that in 1976 and 1977. But that was exactly, that was when I first realized that I had white privilege. That's exactly what it is. We didn't, we didn't coin that term until recently, I suppose. But um, I suppose it's been around much longer than, than we've been able to identify it. Um, there's one, there's one last story in that article that really, really uh, touched me. And I thought this is absolutely amazing. And I wanted to, to ask you about it. It's about um, your great aunt, uh, Annie Mother. Annie Mother. Yes. And, um, you know, you, you described how she would pass as, as a white person to purchase properties and then sell them or rent them to black family members and other black families that could not find decent, you know, affordable housing. And you also mentioned how you wanted to be like her. And then, you know, reading more, you start to see that um, you you began working as a housing programmer for the for the city of Rochester. And I was thinking, you know, what a what a full circle moment. You know, perhaps she's she's been able to to do some work in that regard. So I want to ask you, you know, about that work and and if uh, if if Annie Mother was able to influence your work as a housing programmer and now in the housing finance sector. You know, I never got to meet Annie Mother. She had passed away. Um, before I was born, but I always heard stories about her. And um, she was actually no real relation, I guess, to my family. She was an auntie because she had no children of her own. And she and my uncle David were the landlords of my grandmother and grandfather, and then my father and all of his siblings. And she, the house that they lived in which was the first decent house they lived in, um, was owned by Annie Mother. And she owned all of these different properties in Syracuse. And she was married to my Uncle David. And he was a Black man who looked like a Black man. He was a dark Black man. But she would pose as a white widow and go to banks and get money and purchase properties. I never knew she did this until I started writing down family history. After my dad talked with me that Thanksgiving, I met with my aunt Dolores, who is the oldest of my father's living siblings. Uh, and she was telling me about what Annie mother used to do. And uncle David was the one who taught my father how to wire things and all about electrical stuff. He used to take my dad and my dad's brothers to the different properties they own to help maintain them and to collect rent. So he taught my father how to wire, uh, you know, electric light fixtures, how to fix things in the house, how to do plumbing, electrical, carpentry, all of those things. So they were incredibly close with my family. And I would love to think that Annie Mother whispers in my ear about housing programs and how to reverse redlining. I have a lot of ideas on that. Um, and just home ownership programs. But frankly, I fell into housing. I did not seek it out. It was a series of unfortunate events that landed me into housing. It was a bounced paycheck. I was working as a PR person at a pricey interior design studio. And the owner of it had not paid his taxes properly and the IRS had frozen funds, my paycheck bounced and I started to get calls from my bank. 
Now, I had wanted to save up for a car, so I had applied for a part-time job uh, at a neighborhood organization as a crime prevention person, which I knew nothing about. I walked into that job interview, and I met with the board of directors in the neighborhood group, and the woman who was the executive director, a lovely woman named Jardine Johnson, had just been featured as a model in a high-end magazine, and she was a gorgeous, dark-skinned black woman. And my parents had pointed out this magazine to me literally two days before and said, look at this beautiful woman. Oh my gosh, it's so wonderful to see a dark-skinned model in high fashion. Then I walk into the interview and here's the woman interviewing me. And I said, weren't you modeling in this local magazine? And she said, yeah, that's me. We had the interview. I left. I was hoping to get the part-time job. I get all these calls. My checks bounced. I hang up. I put my head down on the desk thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay my bills? The phone rings again. I think it's the bank. I pick it up. It's Jardine saying the board was impressed with you. We have another opening as a housing specialist. I think you would be great. I want to train you how to do this. Will you accept a full-time job? I said, you bet. I hung up. I said, well, can I start tomorrow? She said, you bet. I hung up. I went. I said, I quit. I got another job. I left. She sent me to graduate school at Pratt, and I learned everything I knew because my paychecks bounced. I was meant to be in housing. I was meant to see that magazine with my parents. I was meant to be Jardine, who was a bridesmaid in my wedding and is one of my best friends to this day. And I was meant to follow that path. And if that isn't God or the universe or any mother working some magic, I don't know what is. <laughs> No, it's definitely good how everything falls together sometimes. And and perhaps any mother, you know, somewhere in the cosmos had a hand in helping you get back into housing. So that's really awesome to hear. That's a wonderful, wonderful story. And um, you know, I I was following I was following your your whole life um without you knowing, sort of secretly. Because <laughs> ah. I wanted to be able to interview you and talk a little bit about about some of these things. Well I to all your former podcasts, so you know, <laughs> yeah. I was I was tracing you guys. That's good, and uh, you know, I, I noticed that um, the famous uh, Soledad O'Brien uh, mentioned in one of her one of her tweets, I think, about about your story, about your how your dad and mom was, were able to overcome and prevail despite all the obstacles that they faced. She really uh, it admired that quality in them. Um, could you say a little bit about how she managed to pick up on that story? I have no idea. I tweeted, <laughs> I tweeted out about my father um, and his experience, um, you know, with not being able to go to college, going into the Navy, them not letting him into the program, finally getting in the program. And I, she, it, that had gone viral and she picked up on it. But as a part of me worries sometimes when I print these things about my, my parents succeeding and moving in spite of because there's always people very quick to point and say well they made it why can't you and my family's experience is an exception that proves the rule because they should not have had any of those hardships they're smart hard-working kind honest forthright people they should not have had to go through this and it's, it's, a, it's against our benefit as human beings, as 
not just a country or a city, but as human beings, when we put barriers and boundaries in front of any of our brothers and sisters, how many people could have come up with various cures or, and just not allowing somebody to be their greatest and best self to become educated, to have their mind open like a blossom. Um, I, I don't understand. I do not understand why this has been allowed. Racism has been allowed to continue. It only benefits a very small, incredibly minuscule population of our societies of cisgendered white men who feel that it's a zero sum game and don't want to give up one iota of power. But it would be so much more of a benefit to everyone if these barriers were removed. So even though people say, oh, your family did so well, sometimes I really worry that they say, well, because they did well, why aren't you doing well? Well, why they aren't doing well is because you're putting up a barrier every time they move an inch forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, there's another side to this that I want to, to ask you about. And you probably know of those uh, white women who are white, <laughs> uh, not, not passing for white, but actually white, uh, like Jessica Krug and Rachel Dolezal, um, who assume black identities, knowing for well that they're they white and they, they have the privilege of being able to assume black identities. Have you ever come across that? And, and, and how do you feel about that? I've never met anybody who did that. And I am conflicted on it, I got to say. Mm. The, the, the issue, the, I can understand loving Black culture and maybe deciding that you love it and you're interested and wanting to be more of a part of it. But to take an opportunity and to take a job based on a lie, to deny somebody else that position when you know it's a lie, I don't know these women. I don't know what motivated them or why they felt the need or the privilege to do that. I don't know why people would pretend to be something that they're not. Uh, I know when people say, oh, you know, because and I, I don't like the word passing. I like the word presenting because to me, passing is somebody who acts to be something you're not. You try to fool people. I am black. My parents are black. My sisters are black. My grandparents are black. Um, my cousins are black. And I understand that when people see me, they mistake me for white. But that's their mistake. It's never because I went out and said I'm a white woman. And for somebody to go out and say I'm a, I'm a white person and try to do that, I don't understand it. I don't understand their world. I don't understand why they would feel now, why they would feel the need to do that. But I'm not going to speak to them. Why people would try to be Black or be Asian or Native American, Indigenous, um, when they're not. If they're doing it to get money, get a job, get fame, get a book deal, 
and they they take away an opportunity from somebody else who really has been through a system that has put up boundaries and that they've put up another boundary. I really I hate to I hate putting somebody else's name in my mouth. And you know, my mother always used to say, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. <laughs> Even as an adult, um, I still feel I still feel very much like that. Yeah. Yeah, I would totally agree with that position. You know, I'd say that um obviously it's a sensitive topic, but you you see you see it often where you know black culture gets celebrated and, and it really gets enjoyed. You see it in in hip hop, it's just kind of like the popular thing to do to to adopt these you know these black mannerisms, even some of the language, some of the some of the ways that that people dress, you know. And you see it, you see it being taken all the time. And when it's done in a respectful way to celebrate the culture, and I think it's absolutely fine. You know, people talk about uh, appropriation, black appropriation. I think I think there's black appreciation, and then there's black disrespect when it's done like as you mentioned in a way where you know, you, you want to pass as a black person to take advantage of an affirmative action campaign to, to hire or to, to get admission into school, then you really need to take a step back and think like, what am I doing here? You know, this, this program is in place to help underprivileged, underrepresented minorities to come into this institution and have a presence. And if I do this, you know, as, as a white person or somebody else, I'm going to be taking this opportunity away from somebody that it's actually designed for. And it's designed for them because they need this opportunity because they're not, they're not well represented. I think in that case, then, then we've got a problem. But in the other cases, you know, whenever, whenever somebody wants to celebrate us or, or celebrate the culture, I'm absolutely fine with that. And in fact, I encourage it. And, and, and that leads into my next question here. You know, you, you really present a unique case and we have listeners Definitely, we're going to have listeners that are in a position like yours, where you know they're kind of racially fluid in a in a way. Like they they might be black, but they're very light skin, and it's just the way that they were made. What advice would you give to our listeners, young and old, that um, that might be black but present as as white, as as you mentioned, present, and um, and that may have experienced you know some of the the the, the encounters that you've experienced. So may experience some of the treatment that you experience on a day-to-day basis as somebody that's got some experience in that field. What would you, what would you say to them? Oh, that's, that's hard. I never really thought of that. Um, somebody once asked me, um, did I ever want to be darker so that people wouldn't mistake me as white? And I had never thought of it. It's kind of like, did I ever want to be taller? Did I ever want, and I always think that God makes us a certain way for a reason. And it's funny because um, I remember when my parents talked to me about race the first time I used, this is a messed up thing for a four-year-old to think, but I used to think if there was a race war, that God made me this way so I could protect my family and hide them. And that's crazy. But as a kid, why is a kid thinking that? But you do. Um, if you, if you present as white and you're black, I think a, a tip that I've always done is to make sure people know I'm black as soon as I can work it into a conversation. And that way, that prevents somebody from saying something that they're never going to be able to take back. And I'm never going to be able to look at them another way. And it opens the door for some honest questions and discussions if, if people want to have that. Um, 
go through life being honest with yourself. Be proud of who you are. Make your parents, make your community proud of you. Uh, always look at things and think, if this is the story of my life, how do I want to have behaved in this story? With courage, with valor, with a sense of righteousness, and always use that as your guide. Well, if that's a tough question, I'd say you handled it really, really well. I think that's great advice. I think that's really, really good advice, you know, letting people know, you know, right from the get go what the situation is so that you can preserve some of those relationships and and always just, you know, engaging in self-love and, and, and knowing that you were made the way that you are for a reason. I think that's that's very sound advice. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I think so. And it's such a pleasure to, to meet your person and to listen to, to what you have to say. It must be something to be to be in a position where people just assume that you're you're white, and therefore think that they can say whatever they they, they want to say um, that they would never say to another person who may look black. Um, your your article was amazing. The fact that there are over a million people that seen it already, maybe two million people by now, and I've seen it already. I think it means that it has had a lot of legs and. Um, and I, I hope it does make some changes to individuals who they, they've grown up with racism all their lives. Um, sometimes they want to change and sometimes they need a reason to change. And I think your article helps to give them that reason to, to, to change. So thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really have enjoyed my time here today. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show sponsor, KIAS, the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca. Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Our show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger. And I'm Nicola Barito. Our theme music is Attitude by Wendy Lewis and Dyson Knight. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to our expert guests. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis people. Find out more about Black Talk at blacktalk.ca. Yeah.